friends. It's a pleasure to introduce the next speaker, Dr. Gabriela Ferrario, who has been a friend of our calendar projects going back, I think, since the first one. She's been coming and participating. Uh, he's held a number of important fellowships now. He is at Cambridge University Library, Geniza Research Unit, where he describes Judeo-Arabic and Hebrew Geniza fragments specifically on alchemy, science, and magic, and he's developing a tag system for the Cambridge Digital Library to navigate digitized Geniza images. His research interests include history of alchemy and medieval science, transmission and reception of Greek knowledge in Islamic civilization, philology of medieval Arabic and Hebrew manuscripts, um, and he's also working on a revised English edition of his thesis, which is on an Arabic and Hebrew versions of a treatise on alchemy, medieval treatise on alchemy. Today, he'll be speaking on theory, allegory, and practice in medieval alchemy, Jewish sources, in their context. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So since this one is, this is the first time that uh, alchemy is addressed uh, during this long series of workshops, I would like to start with um, a brief histo uh, historiographical review of the ideas regarding alchemy that have shaped our contemporary, not, maybe not ours because we are scholars, but the general ideas regarding alchemy that are cir circulating nowadays. So we need to understand that these um, ideas are... Um, uh, were produced around the 18th, 19th, and 20th century and do not represent what actually alchemy was during the Middle Ages. Um, so I'll start with um, taking a look at the etymological dismissal of alchemy that took place around the, uh, during the 18th century. Up to the 18th century, the, ter the terms alchemy and chemistry were more or less used interchangeably. Um, for instance, we see, we see still in the, in the 18th century, uh, we have a collection, uh, two important collections of alchemical works are published, the Theatrum Chemicum, Chemicum and the Bibliotheca Chemica Curiosa. There are actually collections of alchemical texts from the Middle Ages. While at the same time, still in the 18th century, Libavius published a book called Alchemia, which was a collection of chemical, what we now we would consider chemical recipes, and that were called alchemia. It's only around the 18th century that chemists, chemists that deal with operations with matter, decided that in order to be accepted by the uh, establishment of education of the time, in order to match with the en enlightened requests of uh, something that made complete sense and could be replicated, they decided to ascribe to alchemy, to something else than chemistry, all the um, attempts at creating gold out of, of base metals and all the things that were, they consider not scientifically sound. Up to that time, alchemy and chemistry were two interchangeable words. So this stigmatization of alchemy that put it outside the scholarly field gave room for other interpretations of alchemical texts. And this um, can be grouped in, the, in these following categories. The first one, this spiritual interpretation of alchemy, that was mostly put forward by one English lady uh, called uh, uh, Marie Ann Atwood and uh, one American general of the, of the army called Ethan Allen Hitchcock, um, 
around the half of the 19th century, they insisted on the fact that actually what uh, the text, the alchemical texts were concerned with were, was not matter, were, were not the transformations of matter, but were actually inner transformations of the adept that were expressed in an allegorical way through these technical uh, recipes, descriptions of, uh, of operations, allegorical descriptions of operations. So there is a further detachment of alchemy from the scientific field, field due to authors that tend to point at a sort of spiritual alchemy or uh, detach alchemy from the, the material world and again uh, increase the disjunction between what, what was the aim of chemists knowing matter and knowing how matter interacts with itself, and what was the aim of alchemists. On top of this, uh, we see that later on, the Jungian approach to alchemy becomes very famous and very important. And what Jung, uh, who has always been attracted by the occult sciences, he, he wrote, he wrote a, his PhD thesis on the psychology and pathology of occult phenomena. So he, he has always been interested in occult sciences, he, is, he maintained that the practice of alchemy involved the use of a sort of active imagination of, from the part of the adept, which led to a sort of hallucinatory state in which the adept, the alchemist, was, would project the contents of his psyche onto matter. <coughs> and while projecting the content of his psyche, he would see, visualized in, during his operations, the content, the images, they were the product of a collective unconscious in the matter. So Jung went as far as defining and uh, categorizing good alchemical text from bad alchemical text. Good alchemical texts were those full of fanciful images of strange, peculiar symbols that would like, uh, reveal something about the collective unconscious. Why bad alchemical texts were the ones that were reporting actual transformation, actual instructions for performing alchemical transformation, changing metals into gold, and so on. Many criticisms have been, uh, been addressed towards the Jungian position, including one that is very strong that he was a little bit of a fraud in certain cases. There is one particular case that is the, the one of the solar phallus men, according to which one of his patients saw in his dreams this um, solar, solar phallus man, a particular man with the uh, attributes, and, um, and actually Jung was maintaining that this man, one of his patients, could have never been, uh, have seen anywhere that image, but that image could have been found in previous 14th, 15th century alchemical treatises. So how comes this man autonomously comes up with this strange image of, a, of the solar phallus man? Why that corresponds to other images that were produced in the 14th and 15th century? So this, there is an unconscious link between this man and the unconscious of the, the people who produced those images in the 14th and 15th century. Unfortunately, a it has been proved that the publication which had in, on its cover an image of the solar phallus man was available in bookshops and libraries during the period of life of Jung and when Jung in, uh, was asking about his dreams to his, to his patients. So it is very likely that this man somehow glanced over this image and it got stuck in his mind. We don't have to go back and call the... Uh, um, 
general uh, unconscious to explain why this man came up with this image. There are, there are further other, uh, other interpretations of alchemy that are more modern. Uh, alchemy as, as the last um, episode in the history of science where nature is seen as a, as a lively thing. As, a, as, a, as this vitalistic approach, which is, is also present in many works by Mircea Eliade. But what, what I would like to say is that the, the, the position, the scholarly position on alchemy has been changing a lot in the last 35 years, thanks mostly through, to the works of Lawrence Principe, uh, William Newman, and also Jenny Rampley, who have been looking at alchemy and uh, have been trying to bring it back and make it regain its position into the history of science. Um, they, they looked at <coughs> both very practical tests from the Middle Ages from, and from the early modern period, and also they looked at very allegorical texts, the ones, the ones that are more difficult to interpret in a scientific way, in a, an operational way. And what they did was trying to replicate the processes that are that are explained in these in, in medieval treatises or late uh, early modern treatises. One example of one of very allegorical very allegorical uh, passage is this one, which is taken from the first book written by Basil Valentine and published in 1599. Uh, it, it, it is supposed to describe the transmutation of base metals into golds and the different passages that go into this uh, operation uh, through very allegorical figures. And uh, the text says, take the ravenous gray wolf that on account of his name is subjected to the bellicose Mars, but by birth is a child of old Saturn and that lives in the valleys and the mountains of the world and it, possesses a, it is possessed by a great hunger throw the king's body before him that he may have his nourishment from him. And when he has devoured the king, then make a great fire and throw the wolf into it so that it burns up entirely. Thus will the king be redeemed. If this is done thrice, then the lion has conquered the wolf and nothing more to it will be found in it. So what sense can we make of, of this, this fanciful description? If we take into account medieval ar uh, alchemical literature, the early modern expressions of alchemy, we can make a proper operative sense out of this recipe. The king should be interpreted as gold, the king of metal, the more important of the metal. Uh, gold is then fed to a ravenous wolf, son of Saturn. Saturn traditionally correspond corresponds to lead, so the son of Saturn should be a metal or something, a, a, a material that is closely related to uh, lead. And in case of Basil Valentine, we know of his obsession uh, regarding the use of stibnite or an antimony ore. So that, that's, wh that's what the wolf, the ravenous wolf, is. This is also uh, confirmed by the fact that it is ravenous. If you melt stibnite and, and you feed any metal in this melted stibnite, stibnite will dissolve them very quickly. That's why it is uh, described as very hungry, ravenous. And, and it also said, in order to confirm this identification of stibnite, we know that the German name for stibnite is, is called Spiesglanz, so spear shine, spear, a weapon. And that's why it is said that it is subject to Mars. 
Mars, the god of war, so it's a weapon. So, so how can we, and, and Lawrence Principe and William Newman described the, the exact replication of this recipe, how can we make sense of it? If we take a, 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 a gold chain, like a 14 carat gold chain, so it's not pure gold, and we know it's made of like 58% of gold and 42% of copper, so we want to take away the copper, we want to rem uh, have only the pure gold. We follow this description, we feed it to the ravenous wolf, we feed it, we throw this impure gold into a melt of, uh, of uh, stibnite, melted stibnite, melted uh, antimony ore. And what happens is that a brilliant uh, precipitate, of, which is an ally of antimony and gold, will sink to the bottom of the melt, while the, the impurity will, will uh, go to the surface. Then if you roast the alloy, so you feed it with fire, you throw it in the fire, the antimony, the part of antimony that was alloyed with gold, would evaporate, and we, we leave us just with gold. So the lion, uh, the last line says, uh, it's, yeah, it's gone, actually. The last line said, um, if it's done thrice, then the lioness conquered the wolf. The lion is the king of the animals. If you, we compare it to the, the mineral world, the lion would be gold. So gold has been purifying and has, has conquered the wolf. So there are ways of reading by as what we can define a practical exegesis, this sort of text that makes sense of them in a chemical way. They, they are actually, they, it, it would be uh, strange to say that, that we need to call in, into, into this, uh, the interpretation of this process the uh, collective uh, unconscious when by following the, uh, the recipe and substituting the names with very well-known substitutions. And uh, uh, it makes sense from the point of view of chemistry. are actually describing in a very difficult way a chemical operation. So, um, so what, what happens uh, is that like nowadays is a trend between historians of alchemy to go sometimes down to the lab. And this happened also to me in Baltimore some three years ago. And uh, we reproduce a recipe for red sulfur that is supposed to turn um, silver into gold. Actually, for producing it, you need to have some uh, um, aged urine that you have left in the sun in order to um, increase the amount of ammonia in it. And then you dissolve in it in, uh, over fire a, a part of sulfur. And that, that, that solution, if you dropping it, a piece of, a piece of uh, silver, would create a <coughs> yellowish, shiny co coat on it that is not easy to take away when it's, when it's, uh, when it's settled. So that, that, that is a simple recipe for the red sulfur to turn, turn, uh, turn the appearance of silver into gold. One other interesting uh, recipe is this one that uh, tells that how to produce white lead, you leave a plate of lead on in suspension over vinegar for a month, a month and a half, and from the little bluish thing it will become the sort of white encrusted material. When you take away the encrustation, you have the so-called white lead, and white lead is normally described in many alchemical works from the Middle Ages and later on as uh, having this problem that when it's, when it's warmed twice, it is eaten by the red lion. 
So it's difficult to understand what is going on unless you try it, uh, you try it personally. And actually, this, this white powder, when it's, when it's melted once, nothing happens. It becomes a sort of gray, gray molten liquid. But then it solidifies again. And after a few minutes, it, it starts dissolving again. And you can definitely see a red color taking over all the gray matter. So that's the red lion that is eating or taking over the white lead. So there are ways in which in which alchemical recipes can be interpreted as actually part of our history of chemistry uh, that uh, 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 has had some breaks, some theoretical breaks on the way, but uh, it's still very proficuous to do this sort of experiments and interpretation. So this also has bearing to the theme of today's workshop, because we see that these, in order to produce this highly encoded language for describing basic technical operations, one, the, we would imagine that the author is an highly, in, highly intellectual person who knows how to substitute the words, how to use, know, use metaphors, how to explain what is actually happening very simply in the laboratory in a very circumvoluted and very fanciful way. So one question that I've been asking myself since I was invited to talk to this workshop is, can I really address the problem of uh, popular alchemy? If, if alchemical works are all so highly encoded and highly intellectual, and actually there are ways in which I, I maybe managed to address the problem. We'll see what comes next. Anyway, when, when we look at alchemical text, we, we, we have very, very uh, different kinds of alchemical text. This, this line represents a sort of uh, spectrum uh, that uh, alchemical, uh, an alchemical text can fall within. Uh, on one side, we have basic technical recipes. So the one that I read before would fall on the highly metaphorical text side of this, uh, this line. Well, we actually have, and I'm going to show you some of them, very basic, practical, technical, laboratory texts that, that look and read exactly like, I would say, a cooking recipe. There, are, there is a list of ingredients, there is a list of procedure, and if we are lucky, there is also a stated aim of the recipe. Um, there are some features that both very metaphorical text, highly, is, let's say, spiritual, what was interpreted as spiritual text, and technical text uh, share. These are some basic theoretical assumptions that uh, allow the, the existen existence of alchemy and the validity of its aims. So the first is the assumption that it is possible to transmute base metals into noble metals. And this is based on a, a classical Greek theory of the four qualities and elements that make up everything that we know. All the matter that we know is made up of these elements. In the case of metals, there is a further passage in the, in the caves. Uh, um, the, f the four qualities, so dryness, and hotness unite together and uh, become sulfur. Wetness and uh, coldness unite together and become mercury. Mercury and sulfur so have all the four qualities. They mix together, they uh, mix with matter, and they give out all the possible metals. If nothing happens and everything is fine, if the climate is good, if there is not too much dryness, not, no accident intervenes, you will have gold every time. The aim of nature is producing gold. If there are accidents that intervene in the caves, you will have lower levels of metals. So silver, iron, and down, down the scale. 
what the, the alchemists try to do is just replicating what nature should do in its own pace. But since the life of the alchemist is not uh, endless, they try to speed up the process in their laboratory, taking away all the possible accidents. Something that the modern science is doing, taking away the accidents in order to observe one phenomenon. The alchemists are trying to avoid like, this interference of too much cold, too much dry, a, a very wet season that would deteriorate the metals and trying to produce gold, the perfect metal, because it's the balanced one and all the qualities are in their place. So one other feature of alchemical text is a, a constant appeal to secrecy because it, it is considered an esoteric, uh, esoteric discipline that has, doesn't need to be uh, made public and divulged to laymen because that could create many problems including subverting the social uh, uh, order because if everybody can produce gold, then it's a problem because everybody will become rich. And that is not admitted. So this secrecy is obtained by using a very symbolic language. This is a, a very basic scheme of the correspondences between planets and metals that dates back probably to Babylonian times. It's not something that the alchemists came up by, uh, by themselves. but. It is very, very common, it's, it is almost universal, the use of the names of planets when they meant the, the corresponding metal. And it, they don't stop at, that in this, at this stage. There are other correspondences. We, these correspondences are normally called cover names, or decknamen, because they were studied er, in the first half of the 20th century by German scholars, mostly. So they're notoriously known as so the first one it says is gold and the sun, but the second one, when you find in an alchemical text the mention of the scorpion, normally you, you have to start thinking that they are talking about sulfur, because according to the alchemists they were both uh, dry and hot, the scorpion and sulfur, and the scorpion lived in dry and hot climates. And then again, uh, the eagle, when you find the eagle in an alchemical text, normally they are referring to soul ammoniac. So there is a series of uh, ways for trying and deciphering uh, an alchemical text that go through the knowledge of other alchemical texts and the correspondences that have been established, the lexical correspondences that have been established. I've been working for my PhD on this particular manuscript, which is preserved in the Staatsbibliothek in Berlin. And there are, uh, close to the opening of the whole manuscript, uh, there is a, a very interesting alchemical lexicon that opens like this. I'm going to mention the body, the spirits, and the stones using names that differ from the ones usually known. Those are names that the sages, so the alchemists, used for their allusive value. So the decknam and cover names, they will be clarified in the treatise, so then nothing will be lost, and so on. And what follows this is a real series of synonym, synonyma. Um, for alchemical names, for instance, gold, and then it goes, it can be called the noble silver, the sun, the father of experience, the jewel, the tomb, the discarded, the wise, the rays of the sun, the light, and so on. Like 30, 40 synonyms for just for gold. And then mercury is even more uh, treated. It's a her Hermes, the paralytic, uh, the life of the bodies, the cloud, the horizon, the water, the powerful, the water of the sun. So you have uh, 30 possibilities, 30 possible names that would cover the name of Mercury in a recipe. I've tried to play a bit with, with these, with these uh, synonyms, and I took a very simple recipe, for instance, that 
was saying silver is the body needed for obtaining the white color in the great work. Lead can replace it in the mine of work. Arsenic is its soul, mercury is its spirit, and ammoniac salt is its servant. So you can produce 40 different versions of this simple recipe just by using the alchemical lexicon that we have just seen. The moon is the body needed for obtaining the white color in the great work. Saturn can replace it in the manner work. The destroyer of the bodies is its soul. Hermes is its spirits, and the eagle is its servant. The white wax is the body needed for obtaining the white color in the great work. The black can replace it in the manner work. The aloe is its soul. The cloud is its spirit, and the lion, and so on. The night is the body needed. So you can change and permute. In a game of permutation, you can go on for 40, 50 different formulations of the same simple recipe using these synonyms. Um, so these, these are the main considerations that, that led me to ask myself, is it then possible to, have, to, have, to, to identify um, a popular alchemy? Because this game of permutation, the hiding of the technical uh, terminology of alchemy under cover names that detach, detach the meaning uh, the operative meaning of one particular passage and make it become more and more elusive, more and more difficult to interpret. Can we, can we actually have, can we actually hypothesize this in the existence of popular alchemists, people who were just performing recipes, when for just for reading one of these recipes you need to have this amount of knowledge? And this is one question that we, I will try somehow try to answer too, but n probably not completely, so I would like to also ask for your help later on. So I've been working in the last few years on uh, medieval uh, alchemy in the Islamic world, but in particular in the, in, in the Cairo Geniza and more in general in the uh, Jewish world. And um, this uh, brought me straight into uh, one uh, ongoing, ongoing debate regarding how much Jews were implied in, in alchemy. The, it, is, it is really not clear. Uh, and also very recently, for instance, uh, in the mid of, of the 90s, Raphael Patai published a big, big monograph called uh, The Jewish Alchemist. And uh, this monograph has been criticized very, very strongly because it se he seemed to, to uh, more or less uh, interpret everything as alchemy and everybody as a Jew. So there, are, there is a an enormous amount of data that kind of uh, are outside the scope of the book because it's talking about non-Jews that are practicing not alchemy. <laughs> and uh, um, on the other side of the spectrum, a very recent and uh, uh, very good article that I based my talk on uh, a lot uh, by Gad Freudenthal is called Medieval Jewish Alchemist, uh, a noted absence. So it's pointed to an almost complete absence of the, an interest in, of uh, Jewish people in the science of alchemy. So I would say that my position is more or less uh, middle ground. But this debate is not just modern, it's not just from nowadays. It has been going on for centuries with partisans of the fact that the Jews were the inventors of alchemy and the only people who could practice alchemy effectively, <coughs> the owners of the secret of alchemy. On the other side, people say, no, Jews didn't have anything to do with alchemy. So for the first time, I normally show this, this quotation uh, of uh, the geographer and philosopher Francisco Cornelius de Poe, end of the 18th century. He, he, he says that, the, uh, he points, points at the Jews as the inventors of alchemy because they had been ruined during the reign of Cleopatra, 
because they were monopolists and loan sharks, according to him. And uh, during this time of distress, some of those poor persons fell, because of despair, in an outrageous form of devotion and in unbearable fanaticism. And so I believe that those visionaries were the first who imagined a gross fable regarding the transmutation of metals, attributing his secrets to a Jewish woman. So this kind of position points that the, uh, the Jewish people have the originators of alchemy and and fraudulent originations of originators of alchemy because the Pope was not believing in the actual possibility of the transmutation. Um, the Pope was not the only one and not the first to point at the Jewish people as originators on, of alchemy. We have, we have very ancient, like Eleni, uh, uh, late antique sources that, that point in the direction. Even the first very documents that we have of Greek alchemies have passages that say that only the Jews know these secrets and uh, can, uh, can perform the operations. Uh, there, there are the Leiden Papyrus Dablus, for instance, says that the first alchemists were the, actually Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. Um, uh, Moses, in particular, is pointed as uh, is singled out as an alchemy because of all the, the, the matter of dissolving the, the golden calf and letting it drink to the Israelites. So this is an image of the so-called aurum potabile, the drinkable gold that would be a panacea for curing all, all illnesses. Zosimus of Panopoli, which, which, which is uh, arguably the first historical figure of an alchemist lived, who lived between the 4th and the 5th century, says that everything he knew, he owes it to marry the Jew, a, a Jewish lady who was active in Egypt in, in the 2nd and 3rd century between the 2nd and the 3rd century. Uh, and later on also in, in a more literary, encyclopedic and literary context, Jews are singled out as the originators of alchemy, sometimes for blaming them, sometimes for praising them for the discovery. A completely different opinion is the one expressed by Steinschneider. Of course, he was a representative of the Ashkala, the Jewish uh, Enlightenment, and he wanted to clear uh, Judaism for every like so, sort of irrational tendency, and this is how alchemy, as we have seen, was was considered around that time when Steinschneider was writing. So he says, even if he had been cataloging libraries and libraries, and he found some alchemical manuscript written in Hebrew in those libraries, he still states that there is no evidence regarding the involvement of the Jews in alchemy. Although the alchemists used to date back their pseudepigraphical writings to Moses and his sister, which was referred to as Mary the Coptic, the same one that Zosimus referred to, the Jews understood so well the real scales for gold to be fooled by the philosopher's stone. So it, it is of a di very different, very different opinion. There is, there is some truth in what Stein Schneider is, is stating. If we compare what was going on in the Islamic milieu during the Middle Ages, where there is an explosion of original productions of alchemical works, there is an enormous amount of treatises, of commentaries, previ previous treatises. There is a great of the, transmission of this work. Nothing similar happens in the Jewish world. Maybe because Jews were able, in the Islamic world, were able to read the Arabic treatises. These are not, al not allowed to, to state. So I'm going now to go through and follow uh, the, arg the arguments by Freudenthal to point at some evidence outside the Geniza that can help us understanding this, how much Jews were involved in alchemy. 
the, fir the first one, the first piece of evidence is a court record from 10th century Fustat. It's a little bit of a, sto a nice story. Um, so there is, a, there is a quarrel between two brothers. A certain Abram ben Saad of Kairawan and his brother Zabian, who lives in Fustat. So Abram had some jewels. He was in Kairawan, had some jewels and wanted to make a profit out of them. So he gives these jewels to his son, Taib, and he, he gives his son to his brother to go around in Fustat and sell the jewels. Unfortunately, the brother, this Dabian, gets tricked into believing a, an alchemist, a fraudulent alchemist, and so he gives to this alchemy all the alchemist all the jewel, jewels, believing that he would make a profit out of it. The alchemist, in the meantime, authorities figure out that there is this fraudulent alchemist around, so the alchemist flees. Dabian hides because the authorities then are, are after Dabian. And, and Tayyip, the son of our, uh, our um, Abraham ben Saad, the first one, and the one who is complaining in this document, ends up being flogged by the authorities because they accuse him of being covering Dabian, who was covering the alchemist, who has left with the old, all the riches of many other people. And anyway, there is, there is this, um, this idea that... Um, that alchemy, and at, at, as it is stated at the beginning of this court record, is not something that, uh, um, in which common lay people should uh, uh, fiddle with, let's say. It's something that, that lay people shouldn't fiddle with because, as, as it is stated, um, it, it says that alchemy is a practice that is proper to kings who have endless riches, and even if they lose something in this stupid enterprise, they won't become poor. Whoever enters it, it is said, destroys himself with his own hands. So, of course, there is a very, uh, very critical uh, image of alchemy provi provided, uh, provided in this uh, court document, and uh, this also shows that there was a certain knowledge or a certain circulation of alchemists and alchemy, because of course, having a document in which the alchemists are accused of these frauds means that there was some knowledge, at least, of what was going on. Um, there, there, there is evidence of some translations and transcriptions of alchemical works, but not many during the Middle Ages. One of them is the so-called uh, uh, M. Amelek, uh, which is preserved in a 13th century manuscript in the British Library. And um, this... Uh, is probably uh, of Arabic origin. It is made clear by the fact that there are many uh, Arabic words in transliteration in this work, and also that the fact that King Solomon is called Al-Yahud. And, um, and the author, which is not really known, is called Abu Aflah al-Sarakusti, to whom another book, Sefer al-Tamar, is attributed, but it's not really clear who he was. Um, so the aim of the Emma Melek is pro-alchemy, is to persuade the readers of the veracity of the philosophically grounded art called among the scholars alchemy, which allows you to uh, succeed in accumulating money and gathering fortune. And it is, it is uh, divided in three main parts. The first one is more theoretical, and, and it, it's an introduction to the possibility of the transmutation and uh, uh, it also relies probably upon uh, passages from Avicenna's uh, Shifa, where he describes how metals are formed in caves and so on, and then he moves on to describing some practical alchemical <coughs> recipes. This treatise was then picked up, 
picked up later on in the late 13th century, and it was included, passages from these treaties were included in uh, Gershon ben Solomon from Provence uh, treatise Shara Shamay. Uh, and he used these treaties while discussing the possibility of transmutation, but he actually, Gershon, Gershon doesn't, um, doesn't express himself nor, neither in favor or against the possibility of transmutation. We see that medieval Jewish philosophers and encyclopedies have very varied opinions regarding uh, the possibility of the transmutation. In the 11th century treatise Faraid al-Kulub, Chovot al-Levavot, uh, the philosopher Bahia ibn Pakuda uses alchemy just as a term of comparison. He said that whoever puts his trust in God would be even advantage on top of the, al the successful alchemist because uh, even if alchemy, alchemy can provide you with a, as much riches as you want, as much wealth as you want, you still have to find the right instruments for producing the alchemical work. Work with very dangerous material that may blind you, that may damage your skin, that may intoxicate you, and also being alchemy's secret knowledge, you know, it's always very dangerous to bear a secret. Somebody can try and harm you when they want to get. Instead, if you just put your trust in God, you are better off than an alchemist. So it seems to point to the fact that he can sort of believe that alchemists were doing well, but not as well as people who put their trust just in God. So his contemporary Judah Levy seems to maintain that uh, alchemical activities are undermined by a complete lack of theoretical basis, theoretical and philosophical basis. Maimonides doesn't seem to address alchemy straight away. We know that he was uh, strongly against astrology in his letter to the rabbis of, the, of southern France. It is clear that he is against uh, this sort of knowledge and also esoteric knowledge. Uh, he mentions alchemy, um, putting his opinions in the mouth of, of uh, Galen, uh, and Galen, in one of his medical commentaries, Galen is uh, casting some doubts on the authenticity of one Hippocratean treatise on humors. And Galen, but this is Maimonides through Galen, says the text is so confused that it resembles the work of the alchemists, or even worse. So the alchemists here are taken as an example of people who write very, very messy and unreadable treatises. So it's a bad, bad example of not, uh, not of hiding, hiding argument, arguments and so on. Uh, we have uh, two other examples in the 13th century when Shem Tovim Falakera is translating the enumeration of the sciences by Al-Farabi. He, he, he says, Al-Farabi doesn't mention, strangely enough, doesn't mention alchemy, and Shem Tovim Falakera says that he feels compelled to mention alchemy because it was something that was circulating around him. Um, and he uses, again, a, a passage from Avicenna, taken from the Shifa of Avicenna, to talk about alchemy. And in a later translation, still of the same uh, Farabian treatise, the enumeration of the science, again, between the 13th and the 14th century, <coughs> Calonymus ben Calonymus dwells even more into alchemy, and says that he... And it seems that actually Calonymus ben Calonymus was also driven by a personal interest in alchemy, because it, there is another passage in which he is very happy and uh, he's celebrating the fac fact that he found amongst the book in the library of his, uh, his patron, Robert of Anjou, he found one Kitab al-Sumum, book on poisons, by the famous 9th uh, al uh, century alchemist uh, Javer ibn Hayyan. 
So it seems that Calonius, Ben Calonius is not just portraying what, what was the status of the sciences in his time, but he was also giving voice to one of his own personal interests. Of course, these, these are opinions of learned intellectuals and scholars, so this doesn't get us closer to any idea of popular alchemy. What were the people doing? Is it only in a, a practice that intellectuals are interested in? Interested because, of, because they want to follow it or they want to condemn it? We don't know. Uh, I would now like to quickly move on and go to the Geniza evidence uh, that I've been working on for a while. Um, we found a, a passage from a, com a commentary on uh, Aristotle's Degenerazione et Corruzione. This fragment is datable to the 12th or the 13th century. Uh, the passage actually here is focusing on music, but it's taken as a sort of example for uh, explaining the, the, the theory of generation and corruption of matter. It has to be stated that given the fact that these treaties was available to the people of the Jewish community of, uh, of medieval Cairo, uh, tells us that the basic doctrines on which a, a, a theory of the transmutation of, of metals are based were available in Cairo. So these, these treaties, the Generazione Corruzione, uh, uh, contains the basic doctrines of the four humors that are needed for developing a theoretical approach to alchemy. So this was circulating in Cairo, at least. Then another treatise that was circulating, and we found this uh, fragment, is a pseudo-Aristotelian work, probably of Ar definitely of Arabic origin, that was studied also by Ruska in the first half of the 20th century, the book of the uh, stones of pseudo-Aristotle. This work, for instance, uh, gets us closer to alchemy because it quotes um, two very important figures of alchemy, Zosimus and his either wife, sometimes it's his sister, sometimes it's just his par partner, Theosebia. Uh, so the the, the male and, uh, uh, alchemist and the female alchemist that are famous for having, having produced an enormous amount of dialogues on transmutation. Then this passage here doesn't really uh, address any alchemical topic, but it's still interesting to see that the names of, of, alchem names of alchemists and theories that are close to the one of alchemy were circulating in Cairo. Moving on to a very, very interesting fragment that was, was full first noticed by uh, Paul Fenton, but as it has never been edited or published, and I kind of intend to, uh, to do it. Uh, there is this long, long um, fragment that um, it's very rare, this kind of uh, evidence in Geniza material, because as we will see just in a few minutes, uh, what we have is mostly practical recipes. But this one is special because we have little uh, short practical indications of what you should do in, a sort, in an operation, but then there, every single note, every single operative note is anticipated by, by the name of a book where you can find a better explanation for what you want to do. So the books that I've been able to identify, and some of them, unfortunately, lie in the parts that are cut off of the manuscript, as it normally, normally happens. You need an information, and it lies exactly where the manuscript is broken. But so the, the books I've been able to, to identify are the, the so-called Nabatean agriculture, a 9th to 10th century work by the Iraqi Ibn Wahshia. And we have to notice that this is not an agricultural treatise. It's actually preserving Chaldean and Babylonian magical, uh, astrological, 
and also a little bit agricultural knowledge, but it's mostly an esoteric work, and this is quoted as being important for alchemy. There is another work still by Jabir ibn Hayyan, the most famous Arabic alchemist, the Kitab al-Rahma, which is also probably one of the few originally written by a person called Jabir. All the others are so pseudo many others are pseudo-pregraphically attributed to Jabir, but this Rahma seems to be original. A another work by uh, Jabir, the Kitab al-Mujarradat, which was also translated into Latin as Liber Despoliationibus, and also another book, the book of, one of the book of the 70s. There are big collections of books and they circulate under the name of Jabir. And here there is a mention of one of those. Again, another fragment that, that shows us that books, theoretical books, and in this case, very allegorical books were circulating in the Jewish milieu of medieval Fustat, is this other fragment that is actually a sort of colophon list of books that um, lists the books uh, written by Ibn Umayl At-Tamimi, which is, was a 10th century, probably Egyptian alchemist, even if in some, some repertoires is mentioned as Al-Andalusi, but it seems more likely to be from, from Egypt. And, uh, and his works, uh, for instance, the Ma'al Waraki Walar del Najmiya, so the, the silvery uh, water and the starry uh, uh, earth, a very strange name for a treatise. Uh, it's in, it's considered one of the most complex uh, Arabic alchemical treatises. It has been translated. It has been translated into Latin, and the famous this, this Ibn Umayl, the um, reached also Chaucer, who mentioned this Senior Zadit, Zadit, which is actually the name that the Latins picked up for this Ibn Umayl al Tamimi, and. Um, and here, the, the books that are mentioned are the most famous treatise, Al-Mal Waraki, and, uh, and then we have the, a treatise on Magnesia, and a commentary on the treatise of Magnesia, and uh, another book called Kitab Fatih al-Hikmah al-Uzma, so the book of the keys of the great wisdom, which is not extant in Arabic nowadays. So this, this is, again, at least an example of what books, what theoretical books were circulating. And up until a few months ago, I was not aware of these fragments, and I was persuaded that everything we find regarding alchemy in the Geniza is mostly uh, practical. Now, just a few examples of this other practical side that make it uh, drive us closer to the topic of this, of, of this workshop. So the, the, the dichotomy, the tension between theory and practice, or learned alchemy and popular alchemy. This is a, this, uh, I'm focusing on the right side of this slide, and this is really like a cooking recipe. It says take the weight of 20 dirham of mercury, the weight of 10 dirham of uh, horse manure, the weight of 5 dirham of non-treated pearl, the weight of 10 dirham of white alum, and the weight of 4 dirham of sulfurs. It uses the plural. We know that alchemy sometimes dif uh, differentiates between white sulfur and red sulfur, so maybe this may be the case. There are no other indications anyway. And there are five dirham of something that has been rubbed off. So we cannot make silver. Um, pulverize everything until it becomes a black powder. And then you put this black powder in a flask that is isolated with clay. And uh, uh, you leave it, you, you put the flask in a fire. Again, a fire made of manure because it's a very slow burning fire. They tend to use manure a lot for this sort of operation. 
when, it, when it's cooked, you take it out, you pulverize the content with some egg white, you put it in another flask, you light a fire under it from the morning until the night, and then you extract what you have from it, is a white powder, you throw this white powder on 50 dirham of copper or lead, it will be, give you silver, inshallah. This recipe works, it is true, inshallah. That's what it says. So this is, this is, this is a very common, uh, say, style of recipe, style of presentation on the, of an alchemical transmutation. And, uh, and uh, these are also find in, uh, found in Arabic alchemical works. For instance, the one I've been working for my PhD, the Liber de Aluminibus et Salibus, which is a, a, had been attributed by a, to Arras, but is probably spurious, is a collection, mostly a collection of these kind of recipes that are just permitted by very short theoretical passages, but completely short and not really relevant to the, the matter of, of the treatise. There are other, other uh, fragments. I have found up to now some 120 fragments of alchemy within the, the Geniza collection at Cambridge. More are possibly uh, available in other collections. Um, I found m more. There is, for instance, this is another alchemical work um, that deals with the ways of refining the metals, and it mentions the, the, the importance of operating with volatile substances called spirits um, on the solid ones, on the bodies, on the metals. And it's very peculiar because, uh, from, the, from the graphical point of view, uh, there are vernacular renditions uh, of Arabic. For instance, the, in the, the preposition ala, the final uh, ya, the final alif masura here is rendered with an alif. So it seems that either the person was just working, uh, like reading to himself, or he was transcribing something that somebody else was dictating to him. There are other collections of alchemical recipes. Uh, for instance, this one, which is full, filled with the decnamen I've been talking about before. So, uh, for instance, we, it comes back many times the use of the, the eagle in this recipe. You have to crush the eagle, which is actually so ammoniac that you have to crush. You don't have to kill any bird. Uh, uh, and this last fragment is another um, collection of recipes that uh, describes <coughs> the purification of copper by using mercury. So. Um, in this one, the, the interesting point in this one is the mention of uh, alchemical apparatus, so which kind of instruments you need for performance this operation, like pots, crucibles, alembics, and so on. So now to my conclusions, which I would fit in the five minutes maximum. Um, so at the end of the, this long and rushed service of the available sources for our understanding of the relationship between medieval Jewish culture and alchemy, the question addressed by this workshop remains more or less unanswered. Is it possible to identify what we could call a popular alchemy as opposed to a learned one? Or given the esoteric nature of the alchemical language, alchemy is to be seen as exclusive to the learned strata of society due to the complex theoretical basis of its operation it's scarce, scarce practical use because popular medicine is motivated by the fact that people get ill and that you have to cure them. Whether you go to a physician, a proper doctor, or not, then it's a matter probably of wealth, of choice, personal choices, and so on. But alchemy is aimed at producing gold. We can only produce gold out of base metal if we bombard bismuth with uh, atoms, and this is much more expensive than just buying gold. So 
the aim, the final aim of alchemy was impossible. The value of alchemy was the, 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 pass, the, st the intermediate stages where many interesting substances were produced, mineral acids, uh, alcohols, distillates, and so on. So um, one way of addressing the, the theme of this, uh, this workshop would be, so who are the authors? Can we, can, we, uh, can we try and figure out where the authors of these recipes, also these very practical ones, and in these practical ones, there are no mentions of books they refer to or names of authors or their professions and so on. So the way, the way I, I, I tried to approach this problem was by asking myself three questions. Uh, so the ingredients that are mentioned in these, in these recipes uh, are sometimes very expensive. We have many times in which, for instance, lapis lazuli is used. And lapis lazuli, we know it was incredibly expensive during the Middle Ages. There was just one mine nor, known in uh, nowadays Afghanistan, uh, Saresang mines of, of lapis lazuli. It was incredibly expensive. And how comes it enters recipes that don't lead to the production of anything valuable? So who, who already had, uh, maybe in his workshop, maybe in his cupboard, some lapis lazuli that could use for these alchemical trials? Um, one other way of taking it is since the ingredients were, were very expensive, so would have been used for, so, for some, some other enterprise that, that, that um, and so were already available to somebody that then decided to implant the same ingredients to their chemical transmutation. We know, we know, for instance, that, for instance, alum, which is very common in alchemical recipes, was used also for uh, the curing teeth or uh, for the cure of eyes. Uh, lapis lazuli was prescribed sometimes against hallucinations or as an aphrodisiac. Mercury was used in a very dangerous way for urinal problems and uh, calculi. And so it seems that in, in medicine, we, in the field of medicine, we have the same kind of ingredients that, uh, that appear also in, in alchemical recipes. And also the apparatus, the apparatus for producing alchemical uh, uh, artifacts is expensive. You need to you need to get a hold of a laboratory for producing the operations that are described. This is the inventory from a, a, a like a closed workshop of a of a physician, uh, and in the list of uh, materials that are on sale out of this out of this workshop, we find, for instance, um, pots, retorts different kind of copper basins, funnels, mar mugs, short bottlenecks, flasks, uh, copper bowls, uh, and so on, all instruments that are also needed for the performance of alchemical uh, operations. Just two things. So my idea up to a few months ago was that probably we should look at the circles of druggists and physicians for the authorship of these alchemical treatises. Because it seems that the ingredients they used, the apparatus they used, the kind of money they had as well in medieval, in medieval to start, allowed them to maybe spend some time on this sort of leisurely, highly philosophical, but less productive activity. Then I find, found a couple of, of documents in which there is mention of a money exchanger called, so this one is, somebody gets jailed, 
they go to his house, they take, they take all his possession, and they find a, a bundle of coins uh, um, sealed by the, the uh, by uh, Al Sayrafi, so the money exchanger, Al Maruf Bil Kimiyin. It doesn't work because this is a plural, it is strange. Al Sayrafi is plural, but then uh, Al Maruf is singular, Al Kimiyin is uh, oblique case, plural, but still there is this name Al Kimiyin. And again, this one used to be a, a Fatimid document used to write uh, drafts including a draft of a ketuba on the verse of it. There is a, a, this, this draft of a, a, of a document. And uh, so there is a problem of payment, and the, the, the money is shown to a money exchanger. And again, this is called, uh, they show the money to Abu Ali al-Kimiyin. Again, it's a plural for a singular name. So I believe that this doesn't really um, add anything to my argument or doesn't change my idea that it's mostly physicians that probably were practicing alchemy. But it's still interesting to have this nickname for somebody who is doing the money exchanger, somebody whose um, cleanness regarding money and the origin of his money should be stated and clear. Maybe it's an ironical nickname. It's called, I don't know, I really don't know, and if you have any idea, I would be very, very happy to understand it. And now I close by saying, Another strange feature is that these alchemical writings are mostly written in a very, very bad handwriting, an awful handwriting, <coughs> similar to the ones that children were using mm -hmm. when they were writing their exercises. So I would say, shall I take it as a, as a suggestion that my edification of alchemists with physicians is right, because physicians are not totally very <laughs> bad in writing? I don't know. Thank you very much. That people in the streets, as it were, so the, the popular, you know, crowds would be interested in alchemy because of the profits that you can make, uh, as opposed to the um, the scientific alchemists who are interested in the science of it. It's very interesting. Um, and uh, and you said, of course, it never works, and you'll never be able to produce gold by doing that. But it's perhaps not so different from the practice, the very widespread practice in Britain of gambling, where where people are willing to spend their money even though they'll lose it, and they won't actually get it back. But the, the thought that maybe one will succeed is enough to keep them going, and it's almost like a form of entertainment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it has been argued as, as well, I I'm, don't know how, how much value to give to this argument, that uh, some of the products of a medieval alchemist were not tested correctly and so they would have still uh, give the illusion yeah. of a sort of success. So that, that plated uh, little coin of uh, silver that we covered in sulfur and urine um, may have looked for long enough to trick somebody into buying it as gold, uh, the audience. So the, you see, it's very difficult to address this because we have lots of recipes that say, and then I produced gold. But we know that that was not possible. 
And so we still, still like still nowadays, scholars are struggling with these problems. It's not. It's definitely a very open uh, question. This one. The people were attracted by the easy money, and that's that's probably why we find lots of um, lots of admonitions also in the, in Ashkenaz uh, for like don't follow the alchemists. You you will only ruin yourself. In uh, in, in Italy, for instance, uh, in the 15th century, uh, 16th century, um, there is somebody who writes on alchemy and says, uh, if you follow the alchemists, you end up only with five Fs. Uh, because all the Italian words for this, so it's fame, hunger, freddo, cold, fetor, smell, bad smell, uh, fatica, labor, and smoke. So you end up with the five Fs of the alchemist, which is cold, hunger, uh, bad smell. So there are many, many admonitions saying, uh, don't go with the alchemist, you ruin yourself. Or as, as that 10th century document uh, states, it's an art for kings who have lots of leisure, and whoever enters that comes back destroyed and ruined. Pretty much out of time, there's one more uh, question or does your comparison, or you said you compare the medical recipes with the chemical recipes, especially in the context of their, uh, let's say, applicability or their uh, circulation in popular, popular uh, treatises? I think the starting point is it's maybe, okay, it's justified, but it's for them, it was not. I think this was not, maybe not the major uh, drive to, to copy these recipes. The major drive was just to pass on this sort of knowledge. And if you look at medical recipes, for instance, there are so many recipes. It's perfectly clear they were never intended uh, to be applied. They couldn't be applied. The amounts were not there. Uh, the ingredients were not there. No, but people still were curious and they pass the material on. And I think we should be very aware of that and not all the time try even to bend the material and to show that this is what they were using. And um, this is also in the context of the Gemilza important because, okay, we all know it's 10th to 15th century, huge amount of material which came to the Gemilza from all around the Mediterranean area. And it's very hard to say hey, this recipe was being used in uh, 13th or 12th century Cairo. I mean, 99.99% of the cases we can't do it. And the medical recipes also, sometimes we are lucky we have a client and uh, there's a name of a physician, so we can be pretty sure, okay, we have an example of a recipe that has been used. But most of the cases, uh, the literature I went through, and it's, it's taken out of theoretical treatises uh, on a high theoretical level. They are, they are accepted and popular treatises, but it's not in the first place. They were not intended for use. It's a theoretical, I think it's a theoretical issue. It's purely interest, uh, curiosity, you know. And well, I think we should be aware of that when you're dealing with the material and respect it as such. Yes, yes. I, I do appreciate the, this comment. Yeah, and also I've, I've seen for, for later material, like they, 
in alchemy the clear the clear uh, statement of the fact that this recipe is is impossible and still somebody was copying it was copying it for the sake of transmitting uh, recipes and then don't, the knowledge that is within the recipe. So you well, look at the Brian Vidal, the Cabellan Master of Alchemia, you know, the 16th century, this recipe book. Hundreds, hundreds of thousands of recipes, but most of them, no one could apply them, but of course, also, even the languages are, uh, it's, it's Faladit, Ladino, uh, it's Arabic, it's Hebrew. Uh, but still, you know, it's the curiosity which drove them, and which is which is uh, uh, typical for that for that century because it's a certain genre which became popular. So also Chaim Vital, being uh, not only a, a mystic but also a doctor, uh, got interested and collected all the material. But it doesn't say that he applied. I hope. <laughs> you know? And also, it's. Okay, well, that's something that I would like to say something later. You see it also that in the rare cases that uh, they speak about the application, uh, they are aware of the dangers of the application of these drugs because most time they would fail. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you.